Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. Today's podcast is an interview with Bernadette Atuahene. Professor Atuahene is the author of the book, We Want What's Ours, Learning from South Africa's Land Restitution Program. The book is based on 150 interviews she conducted with South Africans who were dispossessed of their land by the colonial and apartheid governments. She is also a law professor at Chicago Kent and a research professor at the American Bar Foundation. She also has a varied experience in the field of law and international development, including work as a legal consultant for the World Bank, a human rights investigator for the Center for Economic and Social Rights, a judicial clerk at the Constitutional Court of South Africa, and practicing as an associate at Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton in New York. She has been honored with the Fulbright Fellowship, Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship, and Princeton's Law and Public Affairs Fellowship. In 2015, she won a National Science Foundation grant for her new book project about land and housing in Detroit. She also has directed and produced an award-winning short documentary film about one South African family's struggle to regain their land. This interview is conducted by Elizabeth Mertz, who is, as many of you know, a leader in the new legal realism movement. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome to the NLR podcast Professor Bernadette Atuahene. Um, and we were really excited to get to hear the latest on her very active project in Detroit, combining concerns about legal theory and a theory-driven research project with very active work on the ground in terms of policy um, and hands-on law reform. So welcome, Professor Atwahene. Thank you so much, Beth. I'm so glad to be joining this uh, wonderful podcast. Well, great. Well, so I wonder if you could just let our listeners know how you got started in Detroit, what were the animating theoretical questions, and what were the animating other concerns and topical concerns that got you started on this work? Wonderful. So all of my work deals with land stolen from people of the African diaspora. My first book had to do with stolen land in South Africa. And for that project, I interviewed 150 people whose land was stolen during apartheid or colonialism and who got some kind of restitution through the land restitution program. And the book tried to really understand the psychological, economic, uh, political, social impacts of getting something back. Um, then I came back home uh, to Chicago, and I, the first project was really uncomfortable for me in lots of ways because it was looking at poor people as the victims. And so I wanted in my next project to really look at poor people as the aggressors, meaning not being stolen from but doing the stealing. So uh, I decided to, to study squatting. And uh, the last big squatting phenomenon uh, was in the Lower East Side of New York, but what's current, the squatting that's currently occurring in Detroit far outpaces that. So I came to Detroit to study squatting. <laughs> and in squatting, in the law, there are two kinds of squatters. There's holdovers and takeovers. Takeovers are what people know, someone who comes into a property with no prior legal relationship. But in the law, there's also a holdover. That's someone who was once the owner, 
is foreclosed upon but then stays. They were once the owner and now they're a squatter. And so for my sample, I had to interview both of these holdovers and these takeovers. And when I started interviewing the holdovers is when I came across the property tax foreclosure crisis. So many homeowners were in their homes, were, were squatting in homes they once used to own because of property tax foreclosure. And once I started really looking into it, I found that there was a lot of economists and urban planners writing in the space, but no lawyers. So no one was talking about the fact that what was happening in Detroit was so clearly illegal. The Michigan State Constitution says no property should be assessed at more than 50% of its market value. And that was exactly the first study we did. We uh, did what's called an assessment ratio study, which is a mechanism used to measure property tax inequity. And we found that between 2009 and 2018, in each of those seven years, anywhere from 55 to 85% of properties were being assessed in violation of the Michigan State Constitution. Then, ever since then, we've been off to the races. And so when you say off to the races, could you describe, I mean, let's start with what are the theories that uh, come out of law, come out of social science, what are the theoretical questions that inform the way you went about studying this? Yeah, so in my first book, I create two theoretical concepts that come from the South Africa case. The first one is called a dignity taking. And that's the idea that there are certain instances, if I take something from you, the point is that the moment of compensation is to give you that thing back or something that's equivalent to that thing. But there are other situations where I take something from you as part of a larger strategy of dehumanization or infantilization. In those instances, just giving you the physical thing back is not enough because I've robbed you of more than just your property, but also your dignity. And I call that a dignity taking. And the argument in my first book is to say when this larger harm called the dignity takings has occurred, what's required is more than mere reparations. What's required is more than mere compensation for the physical thing taken. What's required is a larger, more robust remedy that I call dignity restoration, which is the process of providing compensation through processes that uh, affirm people's humanity and really restore choice. So the real object of dignity restoration is to put the dispossessed individuals and communities in the driver's seat and allowing them to determine how it is that they were made, they are made whole. Since uh, I created those two concepts, over 30 scholars have taken the concepts of dignity takings and dignity restoration and applied them in a lot of very different case studies in different countries, in different historical contexts. Um, and, and so that's a, primary theoretical framework that I came to Detroit with to really try and understand uh, the dignitary aspect of, uh, uh, of squatting, but now that I shifted to the property tax foreclosure crisis, what the main question is, what do, do people consider this from the perspective of the dispossessed, is this a dignity taking, and what will dignity restoration require? That's fascinating. So um, I guess it shows a bunch of different things. One is that in empirical work that questions are guided by what you're finding rather than imposing um, something that you decide ahead of time and then just ram whatever data you find into the categories. It seems like your um, theory and your categories evolved along with what you were actually finding on the ground. Um, That's and exactly the other right. So for the first book project really looked at 
Um, so those 150 interviews that I did, basically the result was creating empirically informed theory. That's what I considered myself doing in the first book project. I created empirically informed theory, uh, and that, that was dignity takings and dignity restoration. And then other scholars went and applied to see if it, if it applied in, in, in context outside of South Africa. So it was really a very ground up understand, getting deep into it. It took me eight years to finish that first project, really getting a deep, deep understanding of what, what's happening in, on the ground in South Africa, coming up with the kind of um, concepts and then uh, seeing if those concepts apply beyond South Africa. And as I understand it, then, the people who've been working with the concept are elaborating, coming up with categories. You guys are developing a whole area of um, different typologies for thinking about dignities, takings, and restoration in different settings. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the other thing that hits me about that is there's a lot of talk right now about trying to you know, enlarge social theory, at least, to include what's called theory from the south of the, you know, the global south. So John and Jean Komaroff have written about this. Um, Didier Fesson, who's an anthropologist at the Institute for Advanced Study, has been trying to um, further this by bringing in scholars from the south Global South in the summers to the institute there. Um, so I know there's uh, many more examples. Uh, William Twining, who is a, a well-known legal theorist and a legal realist, has been trying also to find ways to import non-global north or non-western theory into how we do our analyses of law. And so it hits me that this also has that aspect to it. Oh, without a doubt, because the whole, the, all the concepts of dignity takings and dignity restoration come from the South African case. And it's from the, the South African case that these concepts are born, and then they travel outside of South Africa to Europe, America, and all kinds of other places to see if they fit. So that's, that's absolutely what's happening here. It's theory that starts in the global South and then spreads to the North, when usually it's the other way around. Yes, and from the from the bottom up, from law's subjects. So, so, so now we have uh, the theory-driven research project. We have a sense of how things came out in South Africa. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you did in Detroit, what your methods were, and what you found? Yes. Yeah, so in Detroit, it's a mixed methods project. Um, so the first. Um, part was really quantitative, where I told you we did this assessment ratio study uh, to figure out the property tax inequity to answer the question of, are the property tax assessments in Detroit actually in violation of the Michigan State Constitution? That was the first paper. The second paper um, really looked at uh, race in particular, because if you do work in Detroit and you don't address race directly, you're doing everyone a disservice. And so the second paper really looked at, um, because Detroit is an 80% black city, it, there's no majority white part of the city. And so you couldn't see if white people were being assessed at a different rate than black people. But Wayne County is such that there are uh, so many cities that are 80% or more white and three cities that are 80% or more black. So it's highly racially stratified. So the question in the second paper 
is, are the majority white cities in Wayne County being subjected to these unconstitutional tax assessments and foreclosures at a greater rate than the majority black cities? Interesting, um, and, and you could just clarify, Wayne County is the county that Detroit is in? That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. And the three Michigan. cities, and three cities that are um, 80% more are black are Detroit, Inkster, and Highland Park. Okay. And so you're comparing the and white so, and black cities. Majority. That's right. And so the finding in the second paper is that, yes, in fact, the um, uh, majority black cities are being subjected to these unconstitutional tax assessments and foreclosures at a greater rate than the white cities, which is significant because although um, disparate impact is dead because of Washington v. Davis. Um, and this is a, an American, um, American doctrine about how you could seek a remedy in the courts for racial discrimination. That's right, American Supreme Court case, sorry, yes. And, um, but it's still alive and well in legislation, including the Fair Housing Act. And so the point of the, of the quantitative analysis is to see, is there a disparate impact? Uh, are African-Americans in Wayne County being disproportionately impacted such that the Fair Housing Act would come into play? And the answer was yes in that second paper. And then the third quantitative paper I co-authored uh, with Christopher Berry from the University of Chicago. And there, you know, there's lots of things that cause foreclosure. Poverty, sickness, um, divorce, you can go on and on. So the task in that third and final quantitative paper was to hold all those things constant so we can measure the one variable we were interested in, which was unconstitutional tax assessments. We wanted to know the impact of unconstitutional, we wanted to measure the impact of unconstitutional tax assessments on foreclosure rates. And we're able to say that 10% of all tax foreclosures would not have happened but for these unconstitutional tax assessments. And because the, these unconstitutional tax assessments happen for lower-valued homes more so than higher-valued homes, when we just look at the lowest-valued homes alone, we're able to say that 25% of those foreclose, tax foreclosures would not have happened but for these unconstitutional property tax assessments. So that was uh -huh. that's wow. the kind of three papers that really summed up the quantitative work, and that was really just the appetizer before we got to the main meal, which is the ethnographic work. Um, <laughs> okay. And in the ethnographic work, I've been um, um, doing a participant observation. I moved to Detroit in a community here on the east side that's been hard hit by the property tax foreclosure crisis. Um, I'm doing a methodology that's called engaged research. Um, and trying to understand from the people who I live next to their perspective on the property tax foreclosure crisis. And I just published a paper on why this property tax foreclosure crisis happened in Detroit um, as part of this ethnographic study. And uh, the paper is entitled Predatory Cities, and it just won the 2020 John Hope Franklin uh, Prize for Best Paper on Race, which I'm very pleased with. Well, congratulations, and it sounds like uh, well-deserved. A lot of work went into that. Uh, and can you tell everyone about the ethnographic work? You're going, play, you know, you're going to different uh, homes in an area where a lot of the homes are 
uh, being kind of squatted in because the people have don't have the legal right to be there? Are you? How do you well, contact people? Well, I switched people? the focus. So, yeah, I'm not doing squatting anymore. So I okay. came to Detroit initially to do squatting, but then mm-hmm. I found the property tax foreclosure crisis and then switched my focus to the property tax foreclosure crisis. And I hope to come back to the squatting project uh, after I finish up this book on the property tax foreclosure crisis. So my main methods, again, have been engaged research where um, a couple of things. So I did formal semi-structured interviews with over 60 people who had actually been over-assessed and then foreclosed upon. So that was the primary source of data. And then and you located also, that through your quantitative data set? You, you, you used your quantitative data set to help you find no, them? Not at all. I found them through uh, community partners. Um, so there were so as part of kind of being here, I'm part of something called the Coalition to End Unconstitutional Tax um, Assessments. Was the old name now? It's called the Coalition for Property Tax, tax Justice. And mm-hmm. one of the partner organizations is UCHC, United Community Housing Coalition, and they have been the leader in the anti foreclosure work. And so. Um, I contacted their client, um, uh, people who they had been working with, is the main way that I um, uh, I found the people who had been foreclosed upon. So that yes, so that helped you with recruiting uh, in a targeted way the people that you were interested in studying in more depth for that's right that's for right. that project. Yeah. Through the project, I also you know attend regularly. Um, block club meetings, um, um, and, and then do observations there, various uh, city council meetings. Um, so a whole lot of different kinds of community meetings. So in addition to, uh, again, the kind of more formal interviews, I have observations um, that I, you know, uh, do in, in all throughout the city, mostly throughout the city, but especially in this neighborhood that I live in uh, over here uh, on the east side. And, you know, one of the powerful things about ethnographic work is that it brings us more um, down to the ground and understanding people's lived experiences. And I just wonder if you have some examples or stories about some of the interview work that you did, some of the people that you wound up getting to know as part of this qualitative research? Yeah, so one of the um, women who I got to know, I um, did an interview um, of her, and um, her story was just so, um, it was just, you know, so amazing. She'd been through so much uh, in her life. Uh, was getting her life back on track, and she's a mother of seven. Um, Her and her husband were living in a home, and um, the home, they bought the home through a land contract, which, uh, while in most places in America, the main way people buy homes are using a mortgage, there are very few mortgages issued in the city of Detroit due to formal, uh, you know, informal, you know, redlining, uh, de facto uh, redlining. And so she bought the house on a land contract, which most people in Detroit purchase houses on land contracts, which this is a fact that most people don't know. 
And the bad thing about a land contract is it doesn't have the same disclosure requirements as a mortgage. So she bought the house and didn't know that it owed, there was so much money already that they owed in property taxes. And so they move into the house and uh, uh, before too long, they can't keep up with the property tax payments and they get foreclosed on. Uh, we do the analysis and found out that the assessment was far over 50% of the property's market value, which is uh, what it should be according to the Michigan Constitution. And the last piece in the puzzle is she it lives below the poverty line, and so she qualifies for something called the poverty tax exemption, meaning she should not have been paying the taxes in the first place. So we had a situation, and again, this is one of many, where, number one, she purchased a home and she was being unconstitutionally assessed, uh, when she couldn't afford to pay the resulting illegally inflated property taxes, uh, she was foreclosed upon uh, for property taxes she shouldn't have been paying in the first place because she qualified for the property tax exemption. But the city of Detroit made it so difficult to apply for this property tax exemption. Just to give you an idea, they didn't even have the application online, but even worse, they literally made you apply in order to apply. Like it, no. That makes no sense. Just putting these ridiculous hurdles to, to people applying for the poverty tax exemption. And hence, so many people who qualified for these, this poverty tax exemption didn't get it and ended up, again, being foreclosed on for taxes they shouldn't have been paying in the first place. That was the story of this one individual I'm talking about, but it's a story of so many Detroiters. And this is such a law and society story that the delivery of law on the ground and the mechanisms, the procedures um, can, and the bureaucracy can entirely change what law looks like in action as compared to what people think it's, you know, they look at law in the books and they think, oh, this is fine, we, everything's working this way, and then it takes the researchers to go down on the ground and see what's happening actually in the delivery of, of law. I wonder how you um, apply the, your ideas of dignity taking and restoration in this context, your, the theories that you developed in South Africa. Yeah, and so that's actually the work I still have to do. And so the project is just, um, just in the middle of things. Uh, I still haven't done a thorough, uh, I'm still coding the interviews I've already done. Um, and what's so interesting is the mayor, because there's been all kinds of protests about the property taxes, people are becoming aware, and the mayor promised he would do some kind of compensation. So I'm here now in Detroit for the next two years, basically to monitor and to study this process. That so you get to see it as it's happening. You got it. You got it. Yeah. You and can you, this is, here's a nerd question. Are you using Atlas TI or what, what are, what are you using for your coding? Uh, I'm always using Vivo, not because I think it's better. It's just what I learned in and when, you know, it's such a yeah, yeah. part of custom learning a system. So I well, always of course, use Vivo for all my projects. And Vivo for that. So, I mean, so this is great. So we've done, uh, we've talked about how you worked from theory and from empirical work on the ground. Now let's talk about policy. Um, and your uh, engagement with policy and how you've used empirical work in engaging with uh, law reform efforts. Right. So the main thing, again, so I'm part of something called the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. My role in that coalition is as a professor, providing the data um, uh, and, and telling the telling the, these um, stories that I'm telling you based on 
uh, my data. And mm-hmm. so one of the things the coalition was, um, what did is, so there was a lawsuit, the ACLU, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the law firm of Covington and Burling brought suit against the city of Detroit uh, for these um, assessments. They brought a case against the city of Detroit for obstructive administration of the poverty tax exemption, which I'm just telling you about. And mm-hmm. they brought a case against Wayne County under the theory that I told you about in my paper, the disparate impact under the Fair Housing Act. Um, unfortunately, the case against the uh, Wayne County for the Fair Housing Act never got heard on its merits because of a procedural issue, uh, improper venue. Uh, and But the case against Detroit for the obstructive administration of the poverty tax exemption, in fact, um, went forward and settled. And what the coalition was able to do is to get that settlement only lasted for two years. And what the coalition did is uh, we all were able to get that settlement into an ordinance. So solidifying those changes to how they administered the property tax exemption for forever and also adding some more protections. When So that was the, the first kind of policy legislative victory of our coalition was to really shore up um, the problems with accessing the, the, the property tax exemption. So as you're describing the policy work and the intervention through formal law, really, through formal and informal law, because you have to work both to change law in the books, and you have to figure out how to work with the people on the ground that will make those changes and implement them, I'm reminded of how um, the descriptions of how how Carl Llewellyn and Zoya Menshikoff had to go back and forth and back and forth when they were trying to get law change in terms of the commercial law and that they had to lobby in the uniform law context. They had to go out to each state, especially Zoya Menshikoff went out to the different states with, with other people to convince them that they needed to change the formal law. And so there was a, a combination of based on their scholarship and their sense of what would be good to do, they took formal law seriously. They tried to make it realistic when they, and they used what they knew about the real world to inform that change. And then they went to work on just working through the formal law mechanisms. And I'm hearing you talk about that when you're talking about um, changing the law on the books and also working locally. Is it the case that you're working with uh, formal law and law on the ground and using your research to inform it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Because um, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the formal law is very clear, right? The Michigan State Constitution says no property should be assessed at more than 50% of its market value. That constitutional provision is reiterated in legislation and case law. So there's really no question. There's no debate as to that being the law, but we are seeing rampant violations of that in poor and vulnerable uh, uh, communities uh, in Detroit, but not only in Detroit, but in the majority black cities of Wayne County. So there's a complete disconnect between law in the books and law in practice, and that's the core of what this particular book project on the property tax foreclosure crisis is all about. And that you still believe enough in formal law that you're using it in your effort to make things better. You're, you're not just saying absolutely. Oh, we and what's so crazy? Not only are we using it, but as a, a you know, 
the point is the fact that it's illegal was the thing that coalesced the, this coalition, the mm. Coalition for Property Tax Justice, because there's a lot of injustice in the world. But it's very rare when that injustice is so clearly and unequivocally illegal. And so that has, the illegality has actually been a rallying cry, uh, uh, the glue that has held everyone together because it's the language that everyone speaks. And although they're not part of the coalition, the Mackinac Center, which is a you know, far-right kind of libertarian think tank in Michigan, is also rooting for us and, uh, uh, and you know, of, of like mind. Uh, with this property tax exposure crisis. So it makes for uh, strange bedfellows. Uh, but the point is the illegality of it is what's giving us the, the, the ground game, the um, policy change. That's what's giving us actual leverage to make the change. It's because what's happening is so clearly illegal. So the real law absolutely matters. So ideas about law, legal consciousness, combined with what the actual law uh, says... Um, when it's clear, when there's not really a whole lot of debate or ambiguity, um, that those are, can work together to support legal change, legal empowerment in these kinds of settings. Yep, I agree. Yeah. That's, I mean, I just, I think it's such a living example of some of the most hopeful visions of how uh, a realistic image of law could work from research to to doctrine to theory to practice. Is there anything else uh, in terms of the current policy initiatives that you'd like to add or tell us about? Yeah, one of the things that the um, coalition is currently advocating for is uh, there's a Democratic governor, and the coalition would like the governor to... Um, start up a task force to really investigate the illegal unconstitutional tax assessments going on here in Detroit. So that's one of the kind of another policy objective of the coalition is for her, again, to get some experts together in a committee with teeth so once they find the problems, they can get in there and fix them. Um, because we find that the problems are not just it, it, it here in Detroit. There's some state laws uh, and state bureaucracies that prevent Detroit from doing what it needs to do. And so there's a jurisdictional issue between state, county, um, state, county, and city where the governor really needs to step in. And so, again, one of the, um, our policy calls we're calling for is for a task force to investigate uh, these unconstitutional tax assessments in Detroit. And it sounds like these efforts are actually working pretty well in getting folks with social science and technical knowledge to talk to people with technical legal knowledge. I know that's often a problem. That's often kind of hard to get around. And then also to have stakeholders and people who aren't um, experts in law or social science, but who are experts in what's happening in this particular setting, um, that they're all being able to talk to each other, that there hasn't been a lot of trouble, you know, with the different perspectives coming together. I think that's right. That's right. One of the main things uh, about Detroit when you're doing research here is uh, Detroit is probably one of the most overstudied cities in America. Mm -hmm. uh, and people here are tired of being studied. Uh, and so the approach that I use to build trust and to get over this uh, well-deserved resentment that lots of folks here have about these researchers who come in, you know, with these um, – uh, 
very uh, modest research incentives, and they never come back to show them what they wrote, what happened, mm -hmm. you know, with the research. And so there's a lot of resentment here. Uh, and so the approach I took, this engaged research approach, is so important in places like Detroit, where mostly white researchers are coming in to study a mostly black city, is, again, my I'm part of this Coalition for Property Tax Justice, and I'm giving and getting, and that's important. So um, I, you know, people know I'm here. My primary role is studying the property tax foreclosure crisis, but I'm just not extracting. I also uh, have a group of students that I have. So anytime one of the various organizations in the coalition has a question, I get my, my students to go ahead and research the, you know, whatever question. And uh, I, I obviously am monitoring the research, et cetera, so it takes up my time. But it's, uh, uh, it's a way where I can study what's happening here while also pouring into and giving the various organizations who are giving me access to their constituencies, giving back something immediately. Um, and so that's the research method I've used, again, called Engage Research, to really build trust in a, in a city where trust between people and researchers has been broken. I call it the extractive model of research, which is the norm uh, in the academy, uh, and, and it, it's done a, a lot of damage here in Detroit. Well, and in anthropology, I think we've had to come to terms with that as well, that uh, certainly there was a very extractive approach to research in many, um, in many cases, and uh, white uh, Westerners coming in and then uh, actually realizing later they'd made things worse through their research. So this is part of an ethics of research of how to both maintain your research perspective and, you know, that you're going to find what you find when you use your methods, but that you're also going, you're ethically required to give back to the um, community that you're taking from or building, you know, your own work from. So. Um, it's, it's a, it is a common problem for, um, for folks who are working bet in, between more powerful and more powerless um, areas. Yeah. But you think, you know, this methodology I have, engaged research, I've had so much pushback uh, from people who think ethnography, you need to be a fly on the wall, and uh, this engaged research is doing too much. I mean, uh, it sounds like it makes sense, but even though it makes incredible sense in, in Detroit, there's been incredible pushback against uh, the method. The method. Uh, I think we need actually to translate this a lot because um, I think there's a myth that um, if you get a pile of numbers and or a data set and you run it through a statistics package, well, now you've done uh, something that's more objective or more true, um, but actually that, you know, you don't know the details of uh, how the data were collected if you didn't do it yourself, and if you did do it yourself, then you have to be attentive to your own position in that, and not just for ethical reasons, but for uh, reasons of epistemology of getting the right kind of information and being sure it's sound information. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to talk about our methods in qualitative research as actually being as objective or more objective than some of the ones that are, I think, less questioning of their own um, their own positions and the the 
position and context of the data that they've received. And we all have different problems in our work. But um, anyway, this is so interesting. I'm getting off track, and um, I want to talk about your work. So <laughs> can we also then talk about this? This reminds me also of um, in legal realism uh, that the issue of kind of moving from ground level observation to theory and back and also formal law, that we take formal law seriously. And I just, I know you've written on new legal realism. I wonder if you could make the connection for us between this and very important work that you're doing and new legal realism. I mean, again, everything that we've been talking about is, uh, is the connection, right? So taking this, um, these findings, both quantitative and ethnographic findings, and translating them for policy audiences, translating them for, um, for the community. So a lot of this translation work that is inherent uh, in this project is, I believe, at the core of, of, of new legal realism. So, yes, and you've been, you know, one of the you know, younger generation in that in that movement who's been uh, sort of charting a course for the rest of us. So, uh, thank you for that. Um, and I know that too, um, you have uh, an op-ed about to come out that uh, addresses all of this in the context of the epidemic that's going on now. So maybe we could end by uh, giving our listeners an inside track on that new perspective that you're offering. Yeah, and so the op-ed that's coming up is really about this article, the ethnographic, uh, ethnographic study I did that I published under the um, title Predatory Cities, um, and it looks at the, the main thing I'm looking at is cities. So the, the problem with the all current definitions of corruption, whether it's from World Bank, IMF, Transparency International, they use different words, but they have one thing in common. It always has to be for private gain. We currently have no lexicon to talk about uh, corruption that actually benefits the state fisc itself. And that's what's happening here in Detroit and so many other places where it's not any private individuals who are benefiting. It's the, 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 the state fisc, the, 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 the state budget. And I point to uh, the probably the most widely known uh, instance of this, which is in Ferguson, Missouri, right, uh, where they were doing unconstitutional policing uh, of African Americans, and then who was the benefit of that? The city of Ferguson itself. I look, I talk about Washington, D.C., and their abuse of civil forfeiture laws there, right? So they abused a court rule that their use of civil forfeiture was illegal. Who benefited from that illegality? It wasn't any individual. It was the police department itself, the Washington, D.C. police department uh, itself. And I also talk about in New Orleans, there was recently a ruling by a federal court. Uh, the judges, basically the main way this particular parish courthouse got its uh, uh, operational budget came from court fines and fees. And we all know that before a uh, court can issue, a, put someone in jail for not paying a fine or fee, they have to uh, do what's called an ability to pay hearing because we have abolished debtor's court here in, uh, in America. But this particular court was not doing these ability to pay de determinations because the judges were incentivized to make people pay these fines and fees because it was the 
the primary uh, way uh, source of funding for the court. So I put all this in the context, and that's exactly also what's happening in Detroit. And so the whole op-ed is to say, look, where COVID-19 is exacerbating things. Uh, it's brutalizing local economies at the very same time that it is um, creating a dire need for very important yet expensive uh, social services. And so, again, on one hand, these cities are broke because of the COVID-19. On the other hand, they have all of these added expenditures because of COVID-19. And so the op-ed is saying, look, and let, we need to pass some national legislation to give funding to cities or else we're going to open the door for more cities to become predatory as they struggle to survive. So, wow, a very, uh, very timely intervention in a problem that's just hitting us right now from the way you've worked through and thought about these problems. So is there anything else that you wanted to add? I, uh, we really, really appreciate having you on the podcast. I think we've covered everything, and I just want to say a big thank you to you, Beth, for keeping the uh, fire lit on the New Legal Realism movement, to being one of the founders, and also keeping the momentum going. Uh, we all appreciate you. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new legal realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com this is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Project. Thanks for listening.